You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This election is uniquely important. Part of it is because we are in a pandemic and therefore the president in a massive crisis really matters. What if the United States held a major and critical and possibly world-changing national election, just like the one we're about to have, and you know the outcome is going to have a huge impact on your life, but you don't get a vote in it? Well, step back and consider that's what it's going to be like to watch November 3rd from overseas for all of those citizens of the world who don't get to cast a ballot in our election. Hi, this is John Donvan, host and moderator referee of Intelligence Squared Debates. And during my years as a foreign correspondent for ABC News, I lived through four U.S. presidential elections when I was overseas. And I heard it every single time. Why should only Americans get to vote in the U.S. election? It's not fair. Well, it's because those are the rules. But I I did hear that same lament from Brits and Israelis and Germans and Russians and on and on. And they're right about one thing. Their lives are affected, sometimes profoundly, by the decisions we Americans make on who should be president. So what is the watching world thinking about this election that we're about to have now? Well, that's what we're going to look at in this podcast. We're not doing a debate, but we're doing a dive with one of our favorite and most frequent past debaters and also a member of our board of trustees, Ian Bremmer, who is president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media, an expert on global political risk. He's a guy who watches the world watching us. Ian, thanks so much for joining us in this conversation. John, good to be back with you. Ian, I want to play a little bit of who would they vote for? Uh, who would states, I'm going to go through a list of a, you know about a dozen states out there who are in the news for one reason or another, and just get your sense of if states had a vote in our election, who would they choose? Who do they sure. want? Who do they think sure. is in their best interest? Let's go sort of randomly. Germany. Biden. Russia. Trump. United Kingdom. Trump. Israel. Trump. Turkey. Trump. Argentina. Biden. China. Mixed. Hmm. Egypt. Mm, Trump. Syria. Kind of indifferent. North Korea. Trump. South Korea. Biden. France. Biden. Canada. Biden. All right. It's interesting. I, I There was a, a run of Trumps there for a while, and then Biden kind of came in at the end, but um, and, and a little bit unmixed. I want to go back then and Talk about the perception you have that several of these countries, including, interestingly, the United Kingdom, would prefer a Trump presidency for a second term. So what's going on there? What does Trump represent to the world right now in terms of their interests and in terms of what they want the United States to be? Well, let's let's unpack uh, methodologically a, a little bit of that quick scattershot uh, voting grid you gave me. Uh, before we do that, because sure. I think it's interesting that most uh, antagonists of the United States generally think that Trump has provided more room for action, 
uh, doesn't care as much about human rights, um, is more transactional, doesn't care if you're a democracy or an authoritarian regime. And mm -hmm. so it gives them space to operate. That's not true with everyone, right? Uh, definitely the Iranians see that Trump has been very focused and has hurt them mm -hmm. pulling out of the nuclear deal and facilitating an uh, Israel uh, condominium with some of Iran's Gulf Arab enemies in the region. But generally speaking, when you're talking about authoritarian leaders that we don't like, uh, they tend to prefer Trump for that reason. When it comes to allies, it's a lot more divided. And, uh, you know, in the case, uh, because in a number of cases of, of countries that have good relations with the U.S., they themselves have had more populist leaders. And in the case of the U.K., right, specifically Boris Johnson, I mean, here's a guy who was in favor of Brexit, got that over the hurdle. Um, and, uh, and of course, Trump says that he is referred to himself as Mr. Brexit. So, of course, they're aligned. And there are other leaders in the region, like in Hungary and Poland and Turkey, and a nominal U.S. ally, at least in NATO, that also, for similar reasons, generally support Trump, where American allies that support multilateralism, rule of law, care about, you know, the, the, the deep shared orientation in political and economic systems that the United States has had historically with many of its allies. And some countries you didn't mention, like Japan, for example, uh, would fall into that category. Australia would fall into that category. Those countries uh, would really like to see the back of Trump and would like to see someone, anyone uh, that is a more consistent ally come in. And the, and the, the countries that you're saying that for purposes of their interest in having some leeway to be authoritarian without challenge, and they think that Trump will give them that leeway. Is that accurate? Will Trump give them that room? I mean, there's certainly been a, a fair amount of that. I mean, the United States, for example, the Taliban absolutely prefers Trump because he's been very consistent in saying, I want to end this war. I want to get these troops out as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And I'm prepared to open negotiations with Taliban leaders, which you know previous American presidents certainly would not have done. That's a popular thing inside the United States, generally speaking, um, but it's not supported by many people at all in the foreign policy establishment. So Trump is unusual in that regard, and it's appreciated by a group that certainly doesn't like the United States. Um, I would have added a side to that list. The reason I haven't is because uh, the United States is increasingly not really relevant on the ground in Syria. I mean, they like the fact that Trump has withdrawn a couple hundred troops, um, you know, from the border region. But on balance, if you're in Syria, Russia matters, Turkey matters, Iran matters, the United States doesn't really matter. So this election is not very impactful for you. Let's circle back to China, where you said mixed. Um, you know, in, in the case of China, we've seen tensions building in recent weeks. Um, the U.S. is um, going ahead with selling uh, missiles to Taiwan, China's longtime uh, rival and huge pain in the neck, I think, if you're Beijing. Um, and Beijing is promising to respond in some fashion or another. You, you have said uh, that you see enormous confrontation coming between China and the U.S., no matter who wins on November 3rd. So my, I'm guessing that's your source of uh, it's kind of mixed. Why, why do you think no matter who wins that it's going to be troublesome with China going Yeah, par partially it's because um, a more hawkish policy towards China is 
something that I see pretty bipartisan agreement on in the United States. And there aren't many cases where that's true in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, You know that President Trump refers to coronavirus as the China virus, the China flu all the time. Biden doesn't do that. But Biden just a few days ago referred to Xi Jinping as a thug. And, And Trump almost never says anything untoward about the Chinese president himself. Um, Biden would be more focused on calling out the Chinese on human rights issues, certainly on the Uyghurs, for example, on the new national security law in Hong Kong. Uh, Trump is more focused on issues of the trade deficit of the Chinese buying or not buying American goods, but on big issues like South China Sea and uh, technology and intellectual property being ripped off. You know, actually, it's a hard line from both. Inside China, there are a lot of people that I would say on the economic, more technocratic side of the, of the party hierarchy that really do not want a fight with the United States, mm-hmm. feeling like Biden would normalize policies more. So even though it would be confrontational, um, it wouldn't be as dramatically escalatory. It wouldn't be as dangerous. And they'd like to see Trump out because Trump's willingness to, you know, throw significant new tariffs with a tweet is something that Biden wouldn't do. On the other hand, you have um, the military industrial complex in China that have supported this so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, much more assertive internationally. And a lot of them really prefer Trump because they see that Trump has antagonized so many traditional U.S. allies, and he's withdrawn from international organizations, the Paris Climate Accord, for example, um, the World Health Organization, and COVAX. And these are places where the Chinese themselves are playing more of a leadership role increasingly. So they see that if Trump becomes president again, it's not that China will necessarily look better, but they won't be criticized as much or as easily. Uh, They won't be as differentiated in that regard uh, Mm -hmm. from the way that many countries uh, look at the United States. And so it provides them more space to operate uh, geopolitically than a Biden administration, which would be more multilateral and would coordinate policies more with American allies uh, would be. I want I want to bring in indirect way some other voices of our past debaters. So one of them is the economist Paul Krugman, who who debated with us uh, a while back. And in the days before the U.S. election, he wrote a piece about America's presence on the world stage at this moment and the moments to come. He wrote this: Trump's lasting legacy, I suspect will come in international affairs. For almost 70 years, America played a special role in the world, one that no nation had ever played before. We've now lost that role, and I don't see how we can ever get it back. So there's a, you know, it's potentially possibly hubristic, this notion that the United States has seen itself as the indispensable nation, or that the 20th century was the American century. And I know that you've you've been challenging that notion uh, head on for some time, but but we both know what we what what Krugman's talking about is that there was a, a very important leadership role played by the United States, where more or less nothing got done for wor- better or worse without U.S. involvement. And he's saying that's over now because of President Trump's withdrawal from the world stage. I want to get your take on that, and especially the "get it back" part, because. The implication is that Joe Biden would go out there and try to get it back. So what about that? 
Yeah, and it's such a partisan take is what bothers me about it. It implies that this is all about Trump when it's not. I mean, I wrote about a G0 world coming where the United States was less willing to be the global policeman or the architect of global trade or the cheerleader for democracy and common human values 10 years ago before anyone remotely was thinking about the possibility that Trump would be president. And let's remember that it was under Obama-Biden that internationally so many countries were looking at the United States and criticizing us for leading from behind. Mm -hmm. I mean, when Angela Merkel was taking a million refugees and getting hit domestically, she asked Obama for help. And Obama said, no, we're not going to do that in the United States because it's massively unpopular at home. Um, you know, Biden opposed the surge uh, in Afghanistan, and I, I suspect that he will be on board with getting this war ended as fast as possible and reducing U.S. military footprint in the Middle East. Um, you know, there are so many examples under Obama. I mean, even the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which they tried to do, but they failed. Mm -hmm. And they failed largely because they couldn't get it over the line with a lot of their own members. Um, it wasn't just Republican opposition. So it's pretty clear that if Biden does become president, uh, there will be um, some international organizations that Trump has left that, that Biden would go back into. I mean, the Paris Climate Accord, certainly every other country in the world is a member. Um, Trump left uh, or was trying to leave. He would leave it formally. It would happen after the election. Uh, Biden would immediately rejoin uh, the COVAX issue on vaccine nationalism, trying to create international coordination to roll out collective uh, vaccine support so everyone can get them. Um, Trump refuses to participate. Biden would participate, though, at the margins. But then you've got other issues like NATO. Um, and Trump said NATO was obsolete pretty famously when he was running as president. And then after he became president, he said, you know what? I was wrong. And he really says that. He said, I didn't know anything about NATO, but actually, no, we just want them to spend more money, our allies, and we're going to be still committed to NATO. And frankly, that has been the policy, very similar to Obama's, very similar to what Biden's would be. The IMF, I mean, actually, the United States under Trump has been every bit as cooperative with the IMF as Obama, Biden had been. I, you know, the funny thing is this one has to do with Ivanka, who has a, had a good relationship with Christine Lagarde when she was running the IMF. And ran point to ensure that it wasn't in Trump's line of vision. And Secretary Treasury Mnuchin have wor has worked very closely with both Christine and now with Kristalina Gorgieva, who's running the IMF now. The United Nations, Antonio Guterres, good friend of mine, has never had a problem uh, getting the United States under Trump um, to pay its dues, for example, which historically has been a major political football uh, for other Republican leaders. And even with John Bolton briefly as the national security advisor, the working with the UN was never really a problem. So I think that I mean, we know that Krugman um, is massively um, affected by Trump derangement syndrome. He Almost every column he writes is about how horrible Trump is. And I think that is an abrogation of public responsibility, especially for an economist that's that good who has that much talent and that many people listen to him, it's important to be analytically you know, balanced. 
And I'm, I'm no fan of Trump, but that doesn't stop me from saying when he does things that are useful or make me think that everything's going to go back and be rosy if Biden becomes president. I, I think that we need more of that in this country. So no back and be rosy if Biden becomes president, that that's not the path forward. There's no question that um, the acceleration of um, U.S. Uh, deterioration uh, of, of uh, leading by example around the world if Biden becomes president, he'll slow that deterioration down. There's no, but but I think we have to understand that a, a big p. There are two reasons, two broad sets of reasons why the United States is leading less. One set of reasons is because the geopolitical environment um, is less aligned to the U.S. So, for example, our the transatlantic relationship. The Europeans are more divided. You have many countries inside Europe that are more Euroskeptic that don't coordinate well on policies. You've got the Brits who have just engaged in Brexit. So it's harder to have a strong transatlantic relationship. The Russians are in decline, but they blame the US for that decline, rightly and wrongly. Mm -hmm. um, and they're trying to undermine us and the transatlantic relationship. The Chinese are growing. Historically, the foreign policy establishment, including Joe Biden, by the way, believed that as the Chinese became wealthier, they would align more with us. Uh, that they would support our institutions, our values, um, our political and economic systems. That is not at all true. So you have this constellation of geopolitical shifts that has made it harder for the United States to lead internationally. And then you have a group of domestic factors, a lot of Americans that feel that the role of the United States as exceptional slash indispensable power has not redounded to their benefits, that they do not have an American dream, that the land of opportunity is not open for them. And mm -hmm. so therefore, they've turned against free trade. They've turned against the United States fighting all these wars and having military all over the world, most of which is fought on the back of the poorest part of American society. And if they don't really believe that American democracy works for them, they certainly won't think that they should be exporting that value internationally. And when you put both of those things together, yes, President Trump won by exploiting a lot of what I just said mm -hmm. and has tried to be a wrecking ball on some of it. So he's accelerated the process, but this process was well in train and expanded even under eight years of Obama-Biden. And to believe that that's suddenly going to stop because Biden gets a second bite at the apple, I, I think that's ludicrous. You, you just were speaking about uh, the notion of uh, export of the concepts of democracy overseas. And this was another thing that I experienced firsthand during my foreign correspondent years, that there were a number of, of aspects of what America stood for out there that 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 built goodwill and admiration for what we were. And, you know, some of them were easy Hollywood, uh, blue jeans, uh, rock music. But another one was the way that we did democracy was seen to be a good thing about America. And we had the notion that that was exportable. And I, I was... I was based in Moscow when the Soviet Union collapsed and advisors from the United States rushed in with names like the Democracy Project and they were there to show the Russians how to do democracy. Usually they were talking about writing constitutions or they were doing the apparatus of elections. So I saw the, you know, the same thing in Iraq after the, the war in Iraq and the nations decimated, the, the United States rushes in to teach and now we've got this situation where the message we're putting out to the world is our elections appear to be quite possibly a great big mess coming our way. And Peter Beinart, another one of our previous debaters, 
actually wrote a piece this week suggesting that the UN step up its monitoring of American elections to monitor them for integrity and validity, which is, I, I find quite quite a shocking sort of turn of events. I'm I'm interested in your take on first of all what Peter had to say, but secondly, this notion that right now the one of our leading conceptual exports is looks like such damaged goods is having what impact overseas. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, John. It, it is true. Someone, I wasn't based in Moscow in 91, but I was there in 92, 93. And it was very clear to me, the same experience you just had, that we won the Cold War, not just because of our economy and our military, but because our ideas were better. Uh, because um, so many in the former East Bloc looked to the United States and said, that's an aspirational system. I wish my political system worked like that. Now it's been thirty years, twenty twenty. Um, you know there are there's very few people around the world that look at the United States and say I want my political system to run like that, right? I mm-hmm. mean, very few people would say that. Um, you know, you you might want your kids to study in American universities. You might want to have access to American real estate. You might want to hold U.S. treasuries. You, you might want to live in the United States. There are many reasons for that. But you wouldn't want the political system to run like what we have. And I think the reality is in the last 30 years, not just the elections in the U.S., but actually a number of political institutions in the U.S. have eroded. They've Mm. become delegitimized. Um, If you look at the civil service and the level of corruption at high levels, the, the capturing of it from private sector and other special interests, in the U.S., the uh, weakness of inspectors general, for example, um, and the difficulty in whistleblowing. If you look at just how uh, divided uh, the mainstream media has become, how polarized and social media and how much it's undermined the fabric of civil society and communitarian values in the United States, if you look at the inability of the legislature to work together, lack of bipartisanship, even getting basic things like a budget together, then you look at the executive. And uh, you know whether you talk about uh, the, the, the various amounts of corruption that we've seen under Trump, the conflicts of interest, the influence peddling, I mean, all of these things, it's not like America's about to become China, but you can't argue that those U.S. institutions work as well as transparently as Canada or as Germany, right? They just don't. And so increasingly the United States is slipping towards having a more hybrid political system. It's not about to become authoritarian. It's not about to become a banana republic, but it, it, it really doesn't lead by example anymore. Um, and that that certainly holds true for the elections that we're about to hold, that I think that no matter, even if it is a landslide uh, for Biden, um, I think that many, many Trump supporters will believe that the election has been stolen, has been rigged against them, where I think if Trump wins, the same is true for many Biden supporters. And it's not at all clear. I mean, Trump's done a lot to try to muddy those waters, as well as Bill Barr and others. It's not at all clear to me that we're not going to have a strongly contested outcome, especially if it's close, which itself will be delegitimized. That doesn't mean we won't get a new president at the end of the day. I don't think that Trump is going to be removed by the military or anything like that. But it does mean 
that inside the United States, the process itself has become delegitimized. And of course, that means outside the United States, other countries looking at us no longer want our soft power, no longer want to live like we do. But one final thing I would mention here, John, is the fact that the United States doesn't lead by example anymore does not mean that the United States cannot compel other countries to do what we want the way we have historically, because in many ways, American hard power is actually growing, especially vis-a-vis our allies. If you look at the role and the strength of our banks, if you look at our energy and our food exports, you look at the, you know, the strength of the dollar as the global reserve currency, and most importantly, if you look at our technology companies, which, you know, frankly, with the exception of China, there's no one even close that that's actually increased asymmetrical power between the US and Canada, the US and Japan, the US and Europe. And so you can't just look at the erosion of US political institutions and values in a vacuum. You have to look at it more broadly in the context of the US as a superpower and what the projection of that power means on the global stage. Well, if we Americans will be arguing among ourselves about whether whoever is elected was legitimately elected. What impact will that have on the rest of the world in assessing our elected president? Will, um, in, in other words, if you know, say Biden wins and it's disputed, say Trump wins and it's disputed, either of those people goes to a summit meeting. Are they? Is it going to affect how they're listened to? Will their legitimacy be challenged and doubted abroad as well? Not really. Um, I mean, look, uh, I I know some of these leaders very well personally. So I'll I'll tell you, for example, every time Trump meets, was meeting with Abe in Japan, the prime minister, I mean, the Japanese know how much they rely on the United States. It's the third largest economy in the world, but they do not want anything to go wrong. And the amount of ass kissing that was being done for Trump and how much he's like, yes, you know, you're so wonderful. You're doing a good job. And afterwards, Trump would say, oh, these leaders all love me. Yes. Yes. If you're in those meetings, you would think because they're so incredibly flattering and they're treating him with incredible deference. And it's because the U.S. is massively more powerful. Um, and so I always have that, you're saying. I, I'm, I mean, I just think it's really relevant. There are a lot of leaders, when I think of the Canadians, the Mexicans, the Japanese, the South Koreans, and, and most of the large continental Europeans, though not the UK, all of them look at Trump in a meeting and say, oh my God, how do we just get through this meeting without any problems? They can't believe this is the American president. It's literally disbelief and shock. And do they think he's legitimate? And I think it's extraordinary the Americans voted in somebody like this. I hear this a lot. Again, there are other leaders around the world that get along very well with Trump for a constellation of reasons. I can talk about Modi in India. We can talk about the Gulf states like the Saudis, the UAE. You mentioned Israel before. But, but you, know, you, cannot, you cannot forget that the United States is by far the most powerful country in the world. We outspend the next seven countries combined in terms of our military. The dollar matters. Our companies matter. The banks matter. And, and so when you sit down in a summit, you know, if Biden wins, of course, I mean, even if Biden wins in a close and contested election, there will be a honeymoon. There'll be a honeymoon for a period of time just because those leaders will no longer feel they're in a dysfunctional codependent relationship. I mean, there is a lot of sense of spousal abuse in these summits, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's just, you know, I love, I-, I hate you, don't leave me. 
It's kind of like the relationship between Trump and the mainstream media. I hate you, don't leave me, that they can't tear away from you know his every tweet, the hang on, his every word. They cover him continually and they can't stand him. And it's so incredibly psychologically dysfunctional watch. There's a lot of that going on with American allies around the world too. Despite all of that, you know, if you can see a Biden honeymoon, but six months later, these allies are still going to have the same problems with a United States that is unprepared to play the kind of leadership role that it did historically 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that a lot of those leaders would really like, especially countries like Germany and Japan that spend very little on their military and have much underdeveloped, you know, foreign policy diplomacy capabilities and the rest. A point came up in the in the second uh, Trump-Biden debate talking about North Korea, and Biden made the argument that Trump had cozied up to Kim Jong-un and the, you know, that he had already, by doing so, he had conceded an enormous amount of uh, credit and credibility to the North Korean leader. Trump's response was, no, I got benefits. The, the missile stopped firing, and you got to talk to these people. You got to talk to them. You can't get anywhere by not talking to them. W- what's your take on that? that uh, just just the, the gift of recognition and interaction and negotiation as being something that should be held back? Or did Trump do, do well by, by spending that currency already? I generally think that more engagement with leaders, both those that you like and your adversaries, um, is useful uh, for advancing your national interests longer term. They say, keep your friends close, your enemies closer. Know what they're up to. And some of that is espionage and intelligence, but some of that is engaging in diplomacy. I worry that right now um, there is very little strategic dialogue between the Trump administration and Xi Jinping, that aside from the U.S. trade rep Lighthizer um, and uh, Liu He, uh, there's very little high-level engagement between the two countries. And I think that's a problem. I'd like to see more, even though we don't trust the Chinese and they don't trust us. In the case of North Korea, I had no problem with much more direct engagement diplomatically. The problem is that it was done at the highest level and there was nothing behind it. This was, you know, there was virtually no prep, right? There's, it wasn't coordinated. I mean, frankly, there was a lot of prep that was being done in moving towards normalization of relations between Israel and the Gulf Arab states, something that John Kerry said would never happen, could never happen unless there was movement on Israel-Palestine. And it turned out that by having a diplomatic process and decent relations at a high level and a medium level between a lot of those countries, you could make it happen. In the case of North Korea, Trump had a couple of nice summits and there was nothing underneath it at all. You know, these love letters that were ostensibly exchanged, there was no chance that this was going to move. So I didn't mind creative diplomacy, but there wasn't really diplomacy. It was just Trump trying to make some headlines and get a quick Nobel Peace Prize. And that that turned out to be not very useful. All right. To head home on this conversation, let's bring it home to our election and something much more specific to the situation we're in, which is holding an election in the middle of a pandemic. What, as, as you advise all of your clients about the election and the pandemic, the COVID effect on it, what, what are you telling them? Uh, this election is uh, uniquely important in modern U.S. history, and part of it because how different um, a Biden administration and a Trump administration would be, particularly domestically, part of it is because we are in a pandemic and therefore 
the president in a massive crisis really matters. I mean, if it's Biden with the Senate turning Democrat, you're going to see $3 trillion minimum in February in new stimulus. You'll get nothing close to that if it is um, a divided um, executive and legislature or if Trump wins. Those are hugely different outcomes that you normally wouldn't see on the back of a presidential election. And then you have the issue that the pandemic itself makes it a lot harder to just hold the election, mm -hmm. makes it much more politically divided. I mean, we know that this, this, the Trump administration has uh, politicized the pandemic to a great degree. He doesn't want to talk about it. He wants to focus on the economy. Republicans much more comfortable voting in person on the day, Democrats overwhelmingly voting in advance and by mail. Um, if you are looking to delegitimize the process, the fact that different political strands are voting differently makes it easier to do so. And so the pandemic as well makes it more problematic. Do you have much hope for a vaccine? Well, sure. Um, but I don't think a vaccine is a silver bullet. I, I think that by the middle of next year, we'll have a number of vaccines um, that are being rolled out that will have reasonable efficacy. Um, I think that over time, you will have new vaccines uh, that will work even better. Uh, I think that distribution for the first few vaccines is going to be, it's going to take a long time. There's lack of coordination internationally. They need booster shots, which means twice the amount of time. Um, and uh, also, you need to convince people to take it twice. So it's more challenging. And we, you know, we've got a lot of people that don't necessarily believe in vaccines, and that's gotten worse in the last few months in, in France in particular, in the United States also. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is going to be, we have a quiver and um, the vaccine will be an important arrow in the quiver. But I mean, I'll tell you, mortality rates are already going down significantly because we understand the disease better, because there's more education around what the symptoms are. So people that have the symptoms get to hospitals faster and there's more space for them in hospitals, which makes it easier. Uh, people that are particularly vulnerable have changed their behavior more. That's helpful. And we have new treatments. So you don't need the ventilators because you have high flow oxygen, for example. And, and I think the very fact that fewer people now are dying from this disease, that we have made it less, uh, less dangerous um, just in the course of nine months, should enter into the equation. If you are a policy leader thinking about how to balance quarantine, lockdown, shutting down the economy versus trying to keep businesses operating and open, uh, there are a lot of countries around the world that have already made those decisions. I mean, if you're in sub-Saharan Africa, where you have a population average age of 17, and you don't have much money to stimulate the economy, you can't deal with the lockdown, you never did that at all. You, you made that judgment. You made that balance. Uh, the Americans and the Germans made the balance in very different ways. But as we learn more about the disease, our policymakers need to factor all of that new information into their decisions. It shouldn't yeah. be static. And, and I feel like we're kind of acting as if it's static. It's not. This is, we knew nothing about this disease at the beginning of this year, and now we know a lot. So hopefully that's going to change how we behave. Well, we do live in interesting times, Ian Bremer of the Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. And as always, you made it even more interesting by bringing your perspective. Ian, thanks, thanks so much for your thoughts. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Outstanding. Great to be with you, John.
Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. Shea O'Mara is our director of editorial. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, your moderator, your debate referee, John Donvan. Thank you so much for joining us. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.